Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Alan. Hey, how's it going? Good. You guys, your new, uh, your new friend, huh? How you doing, Matt? Hey, guys. Good evening. Hey, Matt. Are you going to be here in your full glory? No, I'll be veiled. I'll, I'll be veiled by the symbolic. Okay. <laughs> Look at the little kitty cat. Is that a Mexican cat? It is, but but it looks kind of American. He's kind of blonde. Looks like he's from California. <laughs> hey, Dave, how you doing? He's beautiful. Doing good. Doing good. Yeah, we just rescued him uh, yesterday, actually. Oh, what's his name? Cronus. Oh, nice. Like, like the god of time. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a tradition of naming our pets by some uh, ancient god. <laughs> some ancient pagan god. Or some uh, Marvel character. Except for Bonita. Bonita was, uh, other than that, we have, you know, Anubis, Eris. So we used to have a cat, Amon, the, the Egyptian cat dog. Carlos family don't don't like that, though. <laughs> They're like, those are pagan names. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so is uh, the months and the days. And- Actually, I think even the word God is from a pagan. Uh, it's a pagan deity originally. Justin noticed, and... I guess the rest of you probably did too. Basically, we have the conversation on Tuesday night. On Wednesday, I think about our conversation and produce a blog that sums up and uh, brings to conclusion what we were talking about. I went through like three main steps. Step one is that there is this feminine representation of the spirit and feminine of course are the things like giving birth conceiving ad- adoption certainly empathy so what we would often consider feminine characteristics are there in chapter 8 that are attached then to the work of the holy spirit to the point that the holy spirit then is the one who brings about even our relationship to Abba Father through the Son. In chapter 8, if 8 is our guide, and we're using this gendered perspective, this feminine aspect of God brings home, or makes real, or brings to fruition. That's actually the word that Paul uses, you know, that, that bearing fruit. That all of that is attached then to the Holy Spirit, which is a key part of who the Father is and the Son is in our own experience. It's a Trinitarian experiential reality that is gendered feminine. That's point one. When the Holy Spirit is comforter, do most people think of the masculine in that way? This masculine figure, what is going on? Right. Point two, in chapter seven, Paul, he's using the law, you know, the question that is raised in chapter 7 implicitly, it's not an explicit question, and that is, do we perceive who God is through the law? And if we perceive who God is through the law, this will be gendered masculine, and let me explain what I mean by that. That first of all, literally in the presentation of who God is, you know, the, the function of the law, 
prohibiting, the forbidding, the punishing, the father aspect of who God is, is very, we associate that with a kind of masculine orientation or a ma- it's gendered masculine. But you could even say it more strongly than that, that in the story of Babel and Abraham, you know, what is it that the Babelites are doing? That they're taking something like a masculine, procreative, creative principle, not to overemphasize a phallic tower or a phallic symbol. I don't think it's illegitimate to bring that in. Phallic symbolization, idolatrous phallic symbols, I don't mean that they're the only kind of idol, you know, but it is a common theme that you find in the unfolding of idolatry. This was true in Japan even today. You know, there's the little boat east of us, and they're little penis-shaped gods that are on the corner. They're supposed to be little bald-headed Buddhas, but they, they do go back to a phallic symbol. And so if you look at the history of idolatry, and by the way, in Japan, there is literally a penis god, a penis shrine that is just a penis, a huge penis. That's a little bit unusual, but you do find that in uh, other forms of idolatry that a phallic symbol or something very close to a phallic symbol. Now, I'm not making any claim, absolute claim here about idolatry. I'm just saying that this is a theme in idolatry, that even in Ezekiel, then you do find the apparent phallic symbol that, you know, he talks about that you go panting after this God uh, because you imagine that it has an issue like a horse or a donkey that uh, you lust after. I would locate that, that the beginning, and this may be a, a claim that, you know, needs, I don't know how you would substantiate it, but prior to Babel, as far as I can tell, there is no idolatry. After Babel, idolatry is rampant. That is, that this is the stage, this is setting the stage for idolatrous religion. What they're doing is obvious. They're storming the heavens in and through their own creative powers. And so chapter 11 of Genesis is posed over and against chapter 12 of Genesis, in which instead of Abraham making a name for himself, and of course that's the direct phrase from the Babylites, that I will make your name great. The way that Abraham's name will be made great is in and through the abundance of offspring. So if we're thinking here of life, the alternative is one would grab life for themselves, and of course that's even the temptation of Abraham that through his own procreative powers, that he would have a child. And so the story of Abraham and the faith of Abraham is that God then is going to give him a son in the face of his being as good as dead and Sarah's womb as being as good as dead. And then subsequent to this, the circumcision marks the spot of Abraham's faith. Why? You know, why circumcision? I think it's because the procreative powers that are marked there 
by a dependence upon God. The sign is God is going to do this. It's dependence upon God and circumcision. And of course, with circumcision, this is a marker, uh, or this is the law. This is, you know, the enactment of the law. So that Paul's argument, his whole discussion in Romans, is about the law. The mistake that Jews are making in regard to the law is the same mistake that any good idolater is going to make. They're going to imagine that there is life in the law, and that is equated with idolatry by Paul. In other words, it is a Jewish mistake, and it is a misunderstanding of life to imagine that there's life in the law. Or even if we're talking about the prohibition in the Garden of Eden, for the Jews, you know, that prohibition is a kind of proleptic container of all of the law so that they could point, and Paul can point to that prohibition as functioning in the same way. Was there life in the prohibition not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And of course, the idea is, well, no, the prohibition is to point you to the tree of life. The prohibition does not contain life per se. All of this to say that the law is gendered, that is, this mistaken orientation or this mistaken understanding of the law, the tendency is to gender it masculine, and the mark of circumcision is a mark on that masculine orientation. Now, we could take that further, you know, by masculine the idea is, well, if life is in the law, and this is things that we're more familiar with, there is the sense of, in a kind of ontotheology, of being able to sum up all things in and through the symbolic order. You know, you can say it all. And so the orientation of the masculine is this capacity, or this to imagine everything is contained in the law so that we can understand who God is in and through the law. This is sin. That is, this notion, this idea that characterizes forms of theology, ontotheology, or, you know, forms of penal substitution, I think they're just a case in point of the larger problem, the larger failure of thought that we're describing. And so when we talk about the masculine and being gendered masculine and feminine, I think that that plays into, at least implicitly, what Paul is doing. You can talk about him comparing and contrasting this masculine orientation in seven with a feminine orientation in eight. That's point two. If you buy it, I think this is a, a key insight to Romans 7 and 8 and to this discussion. That the law is gendered? Is that the point? That there is then this conception of God in which he's gendered masculine and the idea of a punishing, prohibiting law, I mean, just actually the law-oriented understanding, and so that the way in which you relate to God in this masculine orientation is then law-keeping, or it's an orientation to the law. It may be transgressive, or it may be law-keeping, but they're basically everything gets oriented to the law. 
And this is Paul's own illustration in the beginning of chapter 7, 1 to 4. He talks about two orientations to the law. He uses the case of the woman whose husband is alive. Well, the law there, the idea is that the husband is connected to law. But actually, we could take the the whole picture there as a kind of masculine picture. The law dictates identity. You could say that, in other words, I think we can say this stronger. I think that we're talking about a psychological reality now. I think that, that we've now exposed what the basic human condition is. And that is that it's this orientation to what is the law, the symbolic order, language, that we imagine there's life in language, life in the law, life in the nation state, you know, dot, dot, dot. You can fill in the blank, but it's all still the same orientation. There's an infinite supply of manifestations of this masculine orientation. Well, anything but God. Well, even God perceived as masculine. In other words, the problem is, how do you extract who God is from the law? In other words, it's a mistake. Yes, it's a mistake. But how do we get beyond the mistake? How do we get beyond this false identity? I think that that's what Paul is posing in chapter 7 and 8. That if I love the law, then I love God? The law is God? Is it a confusion? Yes, a confusion of God with the law. Like you search the scriptures in them you think they will have life is what jesus says in the gospel of john but you're mistaken right so they're looking for a principle they're looking for a law they're looking for life in the law they imagine that god is contained in the law uh you know however you want to say it and of course the idea is that paul is arguing that abraham's faith comes prior to circumcision abraham's mm-hmm. faith comes before prior the law. To- before the law. You just implicitly named all the fundamentalist biblicists as well. <laughs> I would guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. what do you point to for boundaries? What you should say, what you should do, you know? What is the restoration movement sort of? You no, know, it's in the Bible. It's an idolatry. It's another form of idolatry. There is a neat book by Christian Smith called The Bible Made Impossible. His whole book is just analyzing the sociology of uh, perpiscuity of the scriptures. And he shows how all the groups that say the Bible, you know, the Bible is clear, common sense readings, it's, it doesn't hold up. What people confess doesn't actually work out in practice. Perpiscuity of the scriptures doesn't make sense in these groups that confess it. Yeah, if it was so clear... We would, there would be no disagreement. But I mean, but that is also idolatry of the human mind as well, or rationality, Scottish common sense realism sort of thing. It, you might say that's idolatrous. I'm making a fairly large claim, a huge claim. I'm saying that I'm describing the mistake. In other words, if you're going to be mistaken, you're always going to be mistaken in the way that I'm describing. <laughs> it's A or B. That this is human identity outside of Christ is this orientation to the law. But this is also a theological orientation. It also describes a philosophical orientation. That is that this is the characteristic mistake that just inundates the human condition. Well, you guys are an easy crowd. 
when you're right, there's no need to correct you. <laughs> okay. So what, what do we, what should we do? What now should, you know, I'm going to be the crowd in Acts chapter two. What then shall we do? Okay. So this brings us to point three, and that is the feminine. What are characteristics of the feminine? Psychoanalytically, the way that we can describe this, the feminine is not all. Think of the illustration at the beginning of chapter seven, verse one to four. Part of the issue here is what happens to God and where do we meet God and, you know, how does this figure into the law? And so where is Christ in regard to the law or where is the law in regard to Christ? And so in Paul's illustration in 7, 1 to 4, he describes, in other words, it's part of the same illustration, this living husband who creates a circumstance in which the woman, if she would consort with her lover, is an adulteress so that the law is determinative of the act of the woman. But then he says, but we have died. That is, suddenly we're in the place of the dead husband. Christ is in the place of the law. It's not that Christ is the law, but the law is in some way, there's a hollow space, there's a gap. And that in Christ, then the law and the language that Paul uses is feminine. That it's not that the law is abolished, or obliterated, the way this thing gets a grip on you is through sin. What is sin? Sin is to say that there's life in the law. Sin is to absolutize the law. Sin is to make mistake the law for God. But in the place of Christ, the idea is that orientation is suspended. What we might call the phallic idolatrous orientation is suspended. So the feminine is able, there, there is a questioning, there is a, a suspension that the law is not all. This then characterizes the opening into chapter 8. But you could almost say that it characterizes what partly what Paul is doing in chapter 7. That is, the is the law sin? What is sin? Sin is to say the law is an absolute. Sin is to say that the law is everything. And so this questioning is already, you know, this is Zizek and Lacan, but it's already a questioning of a kind of orientation, a masculine orientation. So that's point three. And then the discussion about, well, what about Mary? Well, Coakley's point seems to be that in the pictures or paintings that you have a kind of masculine inner circle the father and the son. And of course, this is probably especially true in the Western church where there is notion, there are the notions of salvation taking place as an exchange between the father and the son. It's not clear how the, you know, the, you really don't need the Holy Spirit in that exchange. And that's tra her tracing that. And so then, the, you know, you lose the, the dove or the dove is uh, in a subordinate picture you know, literally, or lost completely, or humanized. That is, these feminine characteristics tend to be humanized, that Mary becomes representative of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the feminine only survives in being degraded to a kind of human role, rather than to being part of a, a divine aspect of God.
Well, if we read in today's chapter, Augustine's take on women, the man is the image of God by himself. The woman is not the image of God. But if the woman is married to a man, together they are the image of God. Which almost sounds like what we call complementarianism. You know, the woman complements the man. And of course, the idea is that in an Augustinian view, uh, that she's made complete. Her role is not substantive in and of itself, but is only to be found in this complementarian position. Yeah. This reminds me, as you were talking, after this book was published, past several years, there was some controversy in evangelicalism about subordinationism in the Trinity, and they were using that as an example for marriage and how married life should be that the son was subordinate to the father. And this is, the, this is exactly what she's talking about in her book, that how you understand the Trinity will leak into how you understand family life, social stuff, politics. But there was people making arguments for the subordination of the son. They would say of the same substance, subordinated in function, and therefore, you know, the wife is subordinated in function to the husband sort of thing, which is just like, what? They were what changing, is happening? Yeah, they were changing up the Trinity in order to support complementarianism. And you know where this actually Rob told me? I heard it from Michael F. Bird. So well, he's in Australia. Yeah, it's in Sydney. Uh, Rob said that the center of the, the guys doing this, they're literally changing the Trinity to support complementarianism. Which sounds strange, but actually, in a sense, that's kind of what Coakley's tracing. Make God in your own image. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like you almost have to make that move to do what they want to do with complementarianism, right? In other words, you you got to make that move within the Trinity to subordinate the Son. It's the only move that you can make theologically, really, to justify such a bad... Yeah. (laughs) Well, if there's subordination in God and we are the image of God, it's the same kind of Augustine move. It's pure heresy, right? Oh, oh, it's pure heresy. Yeah, yeah. Subordinationism is heresy. Right. And you need the heresy to support the treatment of women in the church today. And and what Coakley is saying is the way that people say in the spirit, through the son, to the father, that type of language is subordinationism as well. Traditionally, people might not think of that as subordination because that's like, that's just the way I was taught the Trinity. That's the way it is. But she's pulling on those threads and showing that's that's hierarchy in itself, that the spirit is not equal to the son, which is not equal to the father. The spirit is how we first get you know in touch with God, which leads us to the son, which leads us to the father. Well, they're all equal ontologically. So where one is, they all are. So what is this hierarchy movement, the ascending, descending sort of thing, right? So there's the missions of the, you know, the Trinity, right? The Father sends the Son, sends the Spirit, and then we're on the other side. Spirit leads us to the Son, which takes us to the Fathers. And, and she's my, saying that's hierarchy and uh, subordinating the work of the Trinity. That's what I was going to say. It might be a minor point, but remember in the creed that the that the spirit proceeds from the father in the in the east and then it, the filioque is added yeah yeah uh, yeah and the son and so uh, you know that th- that could then play a part in in, in what we're in, in maybe 
right? And what we're but talking. But it's still, but it's still monarchy because like the father sits on top. I think she's trying to nuance the argument. The way we usually read this history is there's there's sharp divide between east and west, and the east does it this way, and the west does it this way. And yeah, I think her her point is well, actually, that's a bit of a a misunderstanding. And so that's part of the the revisionist idea that is there in her appropriating Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. That is, she's saying that they're actually both going to land us in a similar place. Uh, you know, the Filioque clause, how you nuance that or how you understand that, I think that there, there are several alternative ways of understanding it. My claim would be that what I've just described, still back in in the past, still doing yeah. chapter five. What does this have to do with the law? That's it. The tendency is always to make the mistake to hierarchicalize, to patriarchalize, to masculinize, to legalize. In other words, it's always going to be the same mistake, that that is not simply an Eastern or Western mistake. Nor is it, in other words, I think we can go to both. We find that mistake, but we can also, there are resources in both Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa to get beyond that. Yeah. Is this like a pendulum swing sort of thing? Because I'm thinking of paganism in the scriptures. Most of the gods are feminine. I mean, a lot of them are, at least. A lot of the idols are feminine. Uh, yeah, the, the, the you know, asterisk. I mean, that, that to me, that's a, in Paul in our conversation that is sort of the female body in our culture now is, of course, like over-sexualized. Maybe, maybe the whole the whole mistake uh, is to reify sexuality up back into God, right? Whether male or female. So whether a phallic or a vaginal or human, all too human sexual yeah. uh, identifications, you know, with the creator. Uh, you're right. And I don't quite know how to how this plays out. Actually, I think it's the feminine that the early church fears in Gnosticism, and but maybe and and you know maybe just the feminine period in Origin and Gregory of Nyssa, and that you know the the amazing thing as you're reading these guys, you go back and look, is how sexualized their whole discussion is, the whole thing in which they're moving is this gendered discussion so that, you know, we're in a Puritanism or modern day problem, you know, where this is really the way that Coakley begins her book. We're in the midst of a sexual crisis. And part of it seems to be that instead of addressing things in this kind of gendered fashion and addressing human sexuality, that in some way we imagine that reality, you know, oh, all the spiritual and good stuff, we don't deal with that. But here in Gregory, uh, our, our kind of a launching point tonight, you know, there are two readings, Gregory's and Augustine's reading of Genesis. Do you think, like Augustine is doing, the rational, the law, control over the uncontrollable, the sexual, do we is that just the masculine response to how you want to see the world like desire for control power because you don't have control over yourself and it just seeps out into how you see and understand the world and and i'm just trying to connect the dots with maybe the law in general 
you know, and we talk in our culture and the rational is assumed to be a, a, a masculine thing and feeling and loss of control emotion is more considered to be a feminine thing. What's yeah. what you're thinking? No, yeah. And, and again, I think Coakley is very balanced in her treatment of uh, Augustine. So we can find these failures in Augustine, but she's also going to find that he goes beyond himself. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Augustine, one of his, his big arguments was is that even within the sexual act, in some sense, you lose mastery of, of oneself. Do you interpret Genesis 2 through Genesis 1, or do you interpret Genesis 1 through Genesis 2? Gregory is gender is after the fall, and then Augustine is you know, male and female is part of creation. It's prior to the fall. And wouldn't that lead, um, was it Gregory, that in some sense we would go back to the non-gender? Augustine, would he then have us um, maybe male and female? Uh, in the re- in the resurrection, you still have yeah. a penis, right? Okay, <laughs> woohoo! I don't know why I need it, but <laughs> yeah, the, there's no marrying or whatever you know. Yeah. But it will be a penis under control. Under control. That's yeah. We might read Gregory and say, "Oh, look what he's kind of degrading it sexuality." But her point was a, a kind of an appreciative point. And she's going to say that they're, they're, they're both sort of converging on this idea that they're referencing sexuality. He actually writes on virginity when he's married, which is already a kind of interesting insight. Marriage, marriage is monasticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that, that it is its own discipline. And of course, the issue is desire and the nature of desire. Where does the human failure lie? It's a gendered failure. It's a failure between the masculine and the feminine. It's the failure between the sexes that is brought out there in the fall, but just in our early everyday reality. Point I had never thought about before until I read this, that the psychological analogy is sexed because it's, it's in response to Augustine's thoughts about sex and losing control of oneself. So he imagines, he gives an analogy for God of memory, will, and rationality, I think, all in one harmony. And so we should think of God in this way as you know, all these things in us are one. So you can imagine three in one in you, you know, your memory, your will, and your mind. So we can think of God in this way too. As, you know. And so that comes out of his reflections on sexuality and loss of control. I found that very interesting. And I had never thought of how he thinks of God to be in response to how he understands human sexuality. These are just all just analogies anyways. The final one is Romans 5.5 and Romans 8. They both eventually get there. The mistake is to privilege one of these lesser analogies for God and say, God is this. It affects our politics. It affects our marriages. Like where Gregory and Augustine finally go. People have spent a lot of time thinking about and speculating on the monarchy, the hierarchy, the psychological analogy, but they haven't paid as much attention to these final analogies that she's pointing us to. Lonergan has this four-point hypothesis about the Trinity in his Trinitarian textbook, but in his old age, he writes like at the end, like Augustine does. That, uh, you know, His analogy for the Trinity, his final ones are about 
the love of God overflowing in our hearts, he moves away from a more rational take to a more experiential love of God over, overflowing our hearts take. Let, let me make a, a little minor point to back up two weeks. And this is where I claim, or I said that I thought she got suffering wrong. I think this plays into this conversation also, because there is a suffering that is described in Romans 7 that is a kind of reification of the law and suffering under this kind of masculine, obscene, superego understanding that is very phallic. In other words, that when we talk about the phallus being out of control, the idea that in some way this is a separate kind of separation within the individual, and the separation, the division the law of the mind, the law of the body. And I, I'm afraid that what she does is privilege what I would call a kind of masculine, or she doesn't distinguish, not, but she doesn't distinguish a masculine, obscene sort of suffering. There is a suffering, and especially in a kind of ascetic, there, there's almost a pursuit of a kind of suffering to in some way obtain, to ingratiate yourself, to interpolate yourself into the law. That's still the understanding of the law and God is masculine. And if you don't separate out the suffering of Romans 7, then that suffering is the kind that causes you, I believe, you know, Paul is talking about a futility to which there is no answer. It's to put the gun in the mouth and pull the trigger and there's no answer to that kind of suffering. It's just suffering and giving meaning to suffering per se. And I think that we can gender that masculine. We can talk about it, Romans 7. And that's not the sort of suffering that Paul is describing that characterizes the Christian life. When she talks about the darkness, Don, I just thought, she was referencing, uh, actually, Gregory of Nyssa, talking about more so than uh, John of the Cross. Well, I think, I think she doesn't distinguish. She talks about both as if they're the same thing. In order, I don't think St. John of the Cross was confused, but some <laughs> interpreters of St. John of the Cross imagine that his dark night of the soul is on the order of the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As if it's a, almost a necessity to enter into the full depth of Christ's suffering in order to obtain the resolution that Christ offers. I believe that's a misunderstanding of who Christ is, of what suffering is, okay. and of its redemptive nature. He, he, man, he suffered for a while. <laughs> I can't believe his brothers, they put him in that porta potty, we'll say, let him suffer for a long time. He got sick from it. I didn't you know, know a, a John entered into the John of the Cross. Yes. John of the Cross was trapped in the John for quite a while. And so I don't think we need to, to picture that kind of oppressive. Well, we did this. We did this, you know, with the pain of God and in a Japanese context. I think it's there in Moltmann, unfortunately. I think this is the bad side of Moltmann. Uh, that taking up the pain, you know, into God, God takes it up into himself. There's a kind of reification of pain and death. And what we have in Christ is not the absolutizing of pain and suffering and death, but the defeat of these things, that he suffers the shame. 
Well, the shame that he suffers is one that is brought upon him. In other words, he's oppressed, that he overcomes that oppression. We don't have to, to, he bore the sin. We don't bear the sin in the way that Christ did. He bore the suffering. We don't have to bear the suffering, but we enter into, we conjoin, we're conjoined, we're conformed. And she's talking about this conformity. I'm afraid, again, in a, a fusion of the masculine suffering of seven with the feminine suffering of eight. Okay. So is it just talking about like the Holy Spirit purging, you know, the purgation process that she's talking about? That's a lifetime sort of thing that the Holy Spirit is doing, uh, bringing you your will and say whatever, your will in concert with God's will. That's part of it. Yeah, and, and, and it's not to deny that we may go through a suffering that we bring onto ourselves and that God uses that, and that we all go through a kind of, you know, it's, it's not to deny any of that. It's just to talk about suffering per se as redemptive. My understanding uh, of suffering is it's always characterized as a futility. It's always a byproduct, but God, of course, can bring out of that suffering redemption. He can use the suffering. But I believe there's a suffering that even God can't use. Uh, at least there's a suffering that kills us. Yeah. You've gone too far. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you all know, right. we say God can take evil and transform it into good. The cross is the ultimate example of such. And so I think that where the chapter tonight is pointing us, and actually it's almost the place that we begin the class, and that is, you know, in, in a understanding of the erotic as a way station in human desire that gets us to God. I think that's what she means. That's where she's taking with, with Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Augustine, that they both have this understanding that is going to be built upon desire, the desire of God you know, desire for God must be above all else. I think there's a really big point, and she tugs at it a little bit, that how we envision the end will affect how we live now. And in Aquinas and a lot of Western scholastics, the beatific vision is the end. You start with the end. What is the end goal? What is the aim of theology? The beatific vision. She writes, the goal, Augustine, has in mind is one of final blessedness in clarity and certainty, not perfection in darkness and loss of mental control. And the beatific vision is obviously clarity, being in concert with God. You know, that's the end goal. So it's static, right? And how we reflect on theology, where we're going, that's another good example of how you envision the Trinity, the goal of life affects a lot of things. What you're saying about the beatific vision, Justin, are you saying it can be taken as static, but what she's posing is a dynamic that is unending? There is no. Well, she's just playing, I'm not saying either way, but she's playing off Gregory with Augustine on this fact. More in Gregory of Nyssa, it's not a static, it's not a beatific vision as the final goal. Uh, at least as I understand it, it's a continual progress right right longing after searching it's never a never ending sort of thing i don't want to do a east first west sort of thing but i'm just saying on the west in the on the western side 
a lot of theology starts with the beatific vision as an assumption for theology and goes from there. If there is a kind of apex, there is then uh, an all-encompassing apex. In other words, if we think of agape, if we think of God's love, it's not that we leave out the world, we leave out sexuality, we leave out the anthropomorphic. It's that that's all embraced in this vision, but that there is a darkness at the top of the mountain. That is, that the ascent is that you never uh, uh, ascend completely, that the ascent is a continual ascent. Yeah. And I'm just saying the privileging of the rational as God, and we're just showing that where that goes. If you do that, that's what the beatific vision is, obviously, like a privileging of the rational. We might say the masculine. Yes. God is perfect, real, rational relationality. That makes a privileging of the rational in us as well and our concern for eschatology. This whole conversation in Aquinas and, and these people is dancing around this, and it becomes, when do you get the resurrection of the body? Because it seems to be this add-on extra thing you don't need. It's just all in your head. Because the beatific vision is pure rationality sort of thing. So you don't really, that's the weird thing. You don't really need the resurrection of the body because you get everything you need in the beatific vision, which happens before the, which can happen before the resurrection of the body. So there's this tension, but it's also a tension of how you think of the saints in heaven. You know, the saints in heaven before the resurrection are enjoying the beatific vision. The kind of the point was, what does that do when we downplay the physical body in eschatology to how we treat our bodies now. So it becomes a matter of ethics. Theology is now also more concerned with people that have injuries, physical injuries. Again, we could gender the beatific vision. I, I used to just think, oh, maybe I just don't believe that that's a way to describe it. But And that is that in people like Anselm, he's going to talk about his ontological argument as concluding in the beatific vision. Where does that vision occur? In his head, in a thought, you know, a complete sort of disembodied rationality. And so again, here is the, as you're describing it, Justin, with the feminine, we get this full embodied uh, appreciation for the reality of who we are and who God is. And that then puts a different tenor on everything. Yeah. And it's a weird tension in Aquinas because he says, you're not you without your body. <laughs> the, you know, form and matter must coincide with existence for you to be you, because apart from your body, you're not you. And the way that Zizek would put this is you have a body in a kind of yeah. failed understanding rather than that you are, are a body. Are yeah. a body. And I think that's the tendency is to talk about having a body. And of course, that's really the, the discussion here about a uh, phallus out of control is this body thing. We need to get rid of that in a kind of masculine uh, ideal that, that there is a, a reduction, a, a tendency. The tendency toward the masculine is a tendency to separate out the body and the soul. 
what do we want to say in a, in a positive uh, sort of way about the role of the Holy Spirit? You know, I, I know that you don't want to privilege the feminine over the masculine, uh, because that would be to make the same mistake as privileging the masculine over the feminine, so that we could just as easily misunderstand the Holy Spirit if we privilege the, the feminine in God. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering what you want to say in a positive in a positive sense about who the Holy Spirit is in light of the distinctions that you've made today in regard to what the Holy Spirit is not, in regard to the law, etc. You lose the Father, you lose the Son when you lose the Spirit. That is, that the Father is only the Abba Father. He's only the God that we have in Romans 8 in and through the work of the Spirit. Now that, I assume, is there in Gregory's reading. In other words, this is what both Gregory and Origen are going to do with the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Origen goes so far as to say, you know, Marcion had a point there, that did the Jews really know God? And of course, he, he doesn't agree with Marcion, but what he's saying is that we know God as Father only in Christ. He's going to talk about the trinity of persons are always a necessity. And so that the names become very key, you know, in origin. He's going to do a clear exegetical work. And the idea is that the, it's, the tr it's trinity, but the Holy Spirit then is part of that trinity that brings about the full realization and experience of the Father and the Son in their fullness. Uh, that you really, apart uh, with this subordination of the Spirit, you really are losing the fullness of who God is. Privileging analogies. You mean that the analogies can go awry and cause a subordination? Well, and just you privilege one over the other, is that they purposefully privileged one over the other. <laughs> they didn't really want this Holy Spirit Romans 8 prayer style. That can be influenced by your choices of power. Like we talked about the evangelicals with the marriage thing, how you want marriage to unfold, your politics. I have an emperor. She's, she's digging out and showing what she talked about way earlier is there in Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. All these people who want to divide them, say they're different East and West. They really have the same concern mm -hmm. and ultimately the same understanding in the end about God. Which is what? How would you summarize it? Well, she does it at the end. Gregory and Augustine, ostensibly so different in their account of gender and sexuality, nonetheless converge in their celebration of the apophatic mystery of divine grace, one that seems to sweep all before it, even at last for Gregory, the supposed fix fixities of human gender, that there is this Romans 5, 5, Romans 8 understanding of the Trinity in both of these authors. She, she kind of picks on Augustine with his psychological analogy, but then she says, but wait, even Augustine said, that's not the, like, the ultimate way to think about God. You know, Gregory of Nyssa, like, he changes how he thinks about God. She's showing you that he changes what he thinks. In his later life, in his homilies on the Song of Songs and in the life of Moses, he's transitioned to a different emphasis on the Trinity. Both of them are older and more mature. De Trinitate is a mature writing of Augustine's, strangely, a non-polemical one. Maybe one of the only things Augustine wrote where it wasn't intensely polemical. I think that gets it. 
that they're converging on us on the same point, it's easy to target somebody and say, oh, look. But uh, Augustine himself is saying these are analogies. The analogies fail. So we to, can't circumscribe God. Yeah. And I always thought that, I, you know, even when I was doing Anselm, Anselm referred to himself as a little Augustine. But Anselm was never as good as Augustine because Augustine was always, he always exceeded himself. He was always better than himself or, or better than he, his mistakes. Well, even, even John 17, though it does have the thing she's trying to get away from, the sending of the spirit, I will send the spirit when I go. You know, she wants to say, don't let John's analogy determine how you read all of the New Testament on the Holy Spirit. I think she said that a lot. She wants us to think with Romans as well. John Bear does a nice thing with, he's actually talking about origin, that we probably need to be very careful how we talk about the persons. There is a very particular way that the Bible unfolds this. And I, I guess I kind of like that. The deity, you know, it's really not a focus in Scripture on that the Spirit is God, or the Spirit is the Father, or the in other words, there's not that kind of confusion. And so I, th I think that when we talk about this interaction, I think that getting the name straight, that there is the, the picture of the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in a relational kind of ordering. It is a unifying chapter that we can easily, when you start reading this history, that there's a lot of people that are not going to nuance it as carefully as she does, that they're going to immediately say, oh, the East did it this way or the West did it this way. And so I think that there's first, I think that is to be appreciated. And then to recognize the convergence on this idea of desire and its fulfillment in the, in the spirit. This is a spirit filled. This is where the spirit is taking us, is the incorporation into the Trinity but an incorporation together with all things, including hum human gender and human sexuality. But she also kind of tears down the East-West division, which wasn't really totally there ever. Uh, they converge most remarkably in their final ontological vision of the Trinitarian Godhead and in their perceptions of its radically transformative potential for human life. I've been reading through Gregory's, uh, it's called the, Catech the Catechetical Discourse, sort of a handbook written for bishops teaching catechumens. And Gregory talks about the mystical cross, you know, and in other words, like the image of the cross. It made me think whenever you were talking about, uh, so in other words, you don't picture the cross, right? And so Gregory does this whole thing where he talks about how vertically Christ and his cross brings together heaven and earth through, you know, horizontally, you know, even uh, at the heart of East and West, of course, it's brought together in, in Christ upon the cross that the heart of God is in the center of, of the sort of the mystical cross that brings together East and West and heaven and earth and all these other sort of dualities in the way that, we, you know, maybe it's male and female. Maybe it's uh, however else we would do, uh, we would want to break up the world into binaries, you know, but, but even in the image of the cross, Christ brings all things together in in himself it's, it's kind of a, a beautiful and he does he just does a whole section on on how christ does that in in the the image of the mystical cross nice and neat i think what she's shown us in this book is how radically contextual all theology is that's what we're doing i mean that, we ourselves have to recognize our own context i mean that goes without saying and i think this is part of the thing of a of a, a part of her totality 
Yeah. It's also our totality. And I'm learning more about myself is what part of what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we're all bringing something into this. It is a deconstruction and reconstruction that there's progress to be made and it's always unfolding. People say it derogatively as well. Old, dead, white guys. Yeah, we studied the truth. You do that other That's stuff. right. <laughs> Real theology. Well, I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. As a, as a funny homework assignment, make your Thanksgiving prayer an incorporative yes. Unitarian prayer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I had to, Rob wanted to meet Thursday. I don't think he realizes what Thanksgiving is. I may have to run that down. This I uh, I found this little quote here from I was looking for it from Gregory on the cross. You know, it, it, it really is kind of a cool image. Maybe it's a fitting way to, to end this class. But he says, you know, the cross whose shape is divided in four parts, so that the projections four in number come into contact with itself in the middle, bringing the different natures of existing things into one accord in harmony. The things above and below, uh, you know, or the things that pass sideways to their limits. He uses. Um, the, the passage in Philippians where he says, for each projection of the cross is named by its proper predication, calling height what rises above, depth what lies below, length and breadth what extends to the sides. And elsewhere, I think he made such a thought clear to the Philippians, to whom he says, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. There in one designation, he distinguishes the middle beam, naming things on earth all that is in the middle of the things in heaven and the things under the earth. And this is the mystery that we have learned about the cross. So I, I guess I just really kind of like what he's doing there with the, with the image of the cross sort of bringing all, uh, all things together in Christ. And it's the spirit, you know, that gives rise to, to our, all of our discourse about discourse about, you know, properly of a, a, a theological discourse, right? That it's the spirit who gives that, that no one can say that Jesus is the Christ apart from the spirit like Justin was saying. So there, there's, it's kind of a, uh, we're not used to talking about it in that way. Right. But it's the spirit who gives rise to our, to our talk about Christ, who gives rise to our talk about, you know, properly about the father. And then all these things, perfect expression uh, in the cross and resurrection. Amen. And amen. Take us to the cross, man. Take us yeah, to the cross. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll see everybody next Tuesday. Thanks guys. Okay. Good night. Yeah. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.